We're going to read the Bible now, and if, so if you've got a Bible uh, in front of you, if you've got a phone you want to open up to the passage today, we're looking at Luke chapter 18, from verse 18 onwards. So Luke 18, verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing, how, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Good morning and welcome. So good to have you with us here. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here and it's um, it's great to be kicking off this series called Counterculture. And whether you are just someone, I guess, exploring faith for the first time or whether you're with us week in and week out, I really hope that this clarifies for you just the depths of the gospel and how good it is to follow Jesus and to live a life transformed under his lordship. So I'm actually going to pray to start our time and we're going to dive into this, this passage or these couple of passages from this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that you are just an infinitely good God. Do you love us? Do you send Jesus to die for us, that you have poured out your love upon us through him, and that in him our sin is washed away and we are made new? And we thank you that you are present with us by your Holy Spirit to live transformed lives and to live in the joy of the gospel and to have more and more of our life come under the lordship, the good lordship of Jesus Christ, that we might be filled with joy and hope and that our lives might be set aside for your glory. And we pray this for the sake of your name. Amen. Well, the reason that we're doing this series is because last week we kicked off saying, look, the focus for this year, looking at Jesus' words in Matthew 5 and his call for his church to be salt, that is different to the culture around them, and light to make a difference in the culture around them. But the point of this series is how it is that as a church community, we might live out lives that are transformed by the gospel. And the main challenge to that is that we live in a culture that leans away from the gospel and away from faith in God, even just generally. And so to live a transformed life is actually to live against that aspect. When I was in year 10, I remember very little of my German class, and it was not a particularly engaging language class, not because of the language itself, but our teacher at the time, who was one of those teachers who had Signed up for teaching when there was a great retirement plan attached and basically retired at 20 and kept teaching until they could get that package. Um, But one of the things I remember clearly, which had nothing to do with learning German, was that she was telling us about these mythical roads that they had 
called autobahns that maybe some of you have driven on that apparently, I've never verified this, I just took it as true, that there is no speed limit on them. And we're like, what, what is this place where you can basically go at the speed of light and drive through time? But apparently they existed. And in one class, again, I can't remember why I remember this, and my, my memory is hazy about it. She told us that there was a section of the road where there was a, a, you know, a conglomeration of accidents, which again, isn't that surprising on a road that has no speed limit, but apparently they're meant to be designed for that, those kind of speeds. But apparently what had happened was there was this one section that had a slight curve to it, and there was just an extraordinary amount of accidents in that very spot. And so they did a few things, kind of you know, mitigation things, like putting up signage saying this is an a-, a hazardous spot, you know, maybe adjust your speed, all that sort of stuff. Maybe did everything except just say there's a speed limit. But what they found out was that the reason there were so many accidents is that the camber of the road, I don't know if you know about a camber of a road, but roads on a corner are not meant to be entirely flat. They lean kind of against the corner so that as the force of turning the corner throws you out from the corner, the road is meant to kind of counterbalance that a little bit, and that's the camber of the road. But the camber of the road on this corner, instead of angling you in, angled you out. And so as cars went along it, the road was kind of pushing you off the road almost. And until they fixed that, nothing was actually going to change. We live in a culture that is a secular culture. And the camber of our culture, by just the natural inclination of the gradient, will push you away from faith in God. Charles Taylor, who wrote the book, the the epic book called Our Secular Age, that no one has really read cover to cover, and most have just read summaries of it, and me included, he wrote the book starting the question, how did, how did our culture go from a culture that, where it was basically impossible not to believe in God to where it's impossible almost to believe in God? How did that shift? And his answer is that our culture has become secular, that the camera of the road has pushed people away from faith in God and the beliefs of a secular age, a non-religious age, move us away from a faith in God and the gospel. And living in a secular age, there really are three beliefs. Even though secularism is meant to be non-religious, there are three profound and sacred beliefs that go with it. And I'll summarize them like this. You can call it the secular trinity. There is selfism, the belief that the self is at the center of reality. That we start not with God or some transcendent being, but we start with ourselves. My main allegiance is to myself. My main purpose in life is to find myself. My main accountability is to myself over and against any other person or people or group. We believe in selfism. We believe in feel-goodism. That's the technical term. The belief that I can and should feel good all the time. Bad feelings are bad, good feelings are good, but because we live in an age where there is no heaven and no hell beyond this life, the main thing is the here and now, and so feeling good is all important. And the third belief, you can call it like freedomism. The belief that all external limits are bad and are oppressive and not for my good. And once you believe these three things, you'll basically find it very hard to believe that there is a God because ultimately if the self is the ultimate reality rather than God and if I need to feel good all the time and all, and li- all limits are bad, the idea of believing in a transcendent God who is a judge who I might be accountable to and in whom all life and meaning is found is almost unthinkable. But this is what we live in. And to bring it down to the practical reality, these beliefs are not, I mean, they can be taught in classrooms, but most of them are learned not through kind of rigorous learning or sacred texts, but just through living our life in this city. Just think about this. Just think about 
your phone, that rectangle in your pocket that you touch somewhere in the order of like 2,000 times a day, just think of how powerful a secular belief builder that is. Just think about the belief of selfism. With your phone, you can believe that my immediate needs, wants and desires are the most important reality in all reality. That anything I think or want, I can pretty much get right now because of this device. Not only that, but if you have social media on your phone, you can get instant feedback on yourself. You can think, am I funny? You can post something that's meant to be funny and get instant feedback from other people as to whether or not you are. Am I attractive? Am I popular? Do people respond to me? Do I say profound things? We are constantly building to ourselves the belief that I am at the center of reality. But think about the belief of feel-goodism. Anytime you just feel yuck or off or bored, you can get out your phone and do something. You can be entertained. You can get, keep up to date with sports, you can watch a movie, you can play a game. You never have to feel bad so long as this companion that is with you all the time can make you feel good. Well, think about freedomism. You can be in two places at once. You can connect with thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people all through this device. You can exceed all human limits through it. It builds in us through a million different little ways through small little habits and things done over and over again, these beliefs that ultimately move us away from the belief in God or in the gospel. And see, here's the thing. If you are here and a follower of Jesus, then your habits will either be reinforcing what you say you believe or what you genuinely truly believe to be true about reality, about the meaning of life, about God, or they'll be constantly undermining your beliefs. In Romans 12, 1-2, Paul called it a long time ago when he wrote this. He said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If you're a Christian and a follower of Christ, Paul is saying, in view of the mercy that God has poured out on you, that if you believe the gospel, you say, I'm a sinner who needed the forgiveness of Jesus, and all of that changes the whole reality of my life, all of my priorities and everything I do. He says, if you live in view of that mercy that has been poured out on you, then don't be conformed to the world around you, but be transformed. This is what Jesus was talking about when he says his church is meant to be salt and light, to be different in order to make a difference. And so this series is on that. How are we going to do that? Well, it's having a series of uh, having a culture within our church of counterformation habits that are in line with the gospel truths that we actually believe. And we're heading through stewardship, the belief that we are stewards and not owners, and that what we have is to be for the kingdom and not just for our comfort. That for church community, we're looking at deep community over and against convenience because you can't have both. We're looking at how Scripture should form us, that we should be formed by the Word and not by the world. And on evangelism, that we're to be witnesses and not mere watchers of the world. And so over this series, our hope is that it will lead to real transformation in our lives individually, but also in our small groups in our church. And so today, we're going to start off on stewardship and we're going to start with two stories that in the Gospel of Luke are put back to back 
And they're put there for a reason. And I think you'll see why by the time we get to the end of the last one. So let's dive into the first story here that Jacob read out for us before. In Luke 18, a wealthy ruler comes up to Jesus and he has a question for him. Look at how the story kicks off in Luke 18. It says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your mother and father. And he said, all of these I've kept from my youth. So a rich guy comes up to Jesus and he wants to go to heaven. And just to give context, most people who saw this man would not have seen him as the villain in the story. The fact that he was rich and religious would have been a sign that he was someone who was really devout. Like, look how much God has blessed this guy. Look how devout he must be that he has so much wealth. And so they're seeing him as kind of a pin-up boy for religion. And he comes up to Jesus and he asks him a question. But I think you can tell from how it goes that it's not really a question. He's, he's asking a question, knowing what the answer will be, and kind of knowing that it's actually going to put him in a pretty good light. It's more of a flex. You can think about it like as, as if you had like a... If you had a health and wellness seminar at work and someone who's really fit and healthy puts their hands up and says to the seminar leader, hey, what do I need to do to lead a fit and healthy life? And then the leader says, you should do this, 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 and this. And they're like, oh, that's so embarrassing. I do all of those things. Like, oh, this has backfired, hasn't it? And here this guy's doing the same thing. He says to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He knows Jesus is going to say something about the Ten Commandments and he's waiting in front of this crowd of people to be able to say, oh, gosh, that's so weird. I actually do all of those things. I'm so, oh, guilty. But also Jesus is onto him. And you can tell. When he says to him, good teacher, Jesus first responds by saying, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. He's already just opening the door to the question of like, does this guy know that this is God himself in flesh? Or does he just see him as a, as a fellow good, good teacher or good person? But as he keeps going, what Jesus says to this man is going to completely shatter his world. Look what he says in, in verse 22. It says, when Jesus heard this, that is when he hears the man say, I've done all this stuff, he said to him, one thing you lack, sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven where apparently you want to go. And he says, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus says to him, all right, one thing you lack, just sell everything you have and come and follow me. And the response of the man is to walk away incredibly sad because he has a lot of stuff. He couldn't believe in that moment that to follow Jesus would be worth more than the things that he actually has. And the reason for it is that money was his God. See, when Jesus listed the commandments before, did you notice the one that he left out? The very first commandment, that you shall have no other gods before me. And for this man, his God was his money. And so Jesus was saying to him, look, who do you think I am? I, do you want to just see me as like another teacher? Or will you relate to me as I am, as God himself, 
as worth more than anything else you could have. And so he puts him on the spot and he says, all right, you've got a choice. You can either have me and life eternal or you can have your wealth. And the man walks away sad. And in response to this, Jesus explains to his disciples what's going on. In 24, Jesus says this, Seeing that he had become sad, he said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus sees that he's made this very wealthy man incredibly sad. And that's interesting. Can I ask something? And obviously you don't need to answer audibly. When you found out that the talk was on money today, did it make you just a little bit sad? If so, that's interesting and maybe fitting to what Jesus says because Jesus says rich people are going to find this really hard to hear. And the reality is that as rich as this guy was, and I imagine he was comparatively richer to the people around him than maybe you are to the people around you or I am to the people around me, but it's also fairly likely that probably everyone in this room, even if your income is pretty low or you're right up against it right now, that you probably live at a higher standard of living than he did even then. That your mattress is probably of superior quality than his was. That you have enjoyed culinary pleasures that he never even enjoyed or imagined to enjoy. That the access to medical care and treatment that you have is far superior to what he had. And Jesus said, it's going to be really hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. And when Jesus says this, the reality of it is that he's talking to us. When it's the truth that 46% of the world population lives on less than $10 a day, and almost a billion people live in extreme poverty in less than $2 a day, it's fair to say that we are rich. And with that comes a challenge. Jesus says it's really hard for rich people to believe in God, to follow him. That's his summary point after this guy has come to him saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he walks away sad. Jesus says it's hard for rich people to hear this. And why? Because I think money builds in you the belief that I don't really need God. I mean, even if you just think about how spending has changed and what impact that has on us, it used to be the case, let's say in the 90s, like maybe it was earlier than that, supermarkets came up with a section called impulse items. So just near the counter, because you already had cash with you, there were small items that you didn't plan to get while you were shopping, but they're just there at the end because on impulse you can think, I kind of want something and I'll get something just while I'm here at the counter. Now back then in the 90s, even buying a can of Coke had like a cooling off period. So not like, not buying a house, but just a Coke. So if you were out and you had no cash on you, and you're like, it's really hot, I'm thirsty, I want a can of drink, you're like, I don't have any money on me, you'd have to go home and get some money, and by the time you're there, you're like, I'm just going to have a glass of water. So even like, even like an item that was like a dollar had a cooling off period. Now you can impulse buy cars, maybe even houses. Everything is set up to be frictionless so that we can just buy, 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 buy. And as we tap away, it builds into us a view about ourselves and the world. When we spend, it actually impacts how we think and believe. 
Just think about the fact that whenever you want a thing, you can get it. And think about how sad it makes you when something is meant to be delivered in three to five days, but it looks like it's going to be five rather than three, and how much that affects your soul. We can have almost anything at our fingertips, and it builds in us the belief that I'm at the center of the universe, that I never have to feel bad. If I wake up and I just feel funny, I can just buy things that make me feel good, and packages arrive at my door, and I get a little boost. And it makes us believe that we can, we can defy even the limits that are upon us physically. We can buy anti-aging creams or vitamins or all kinds of things to extend our health infinitely. We, in the end, start to believe like we can live without God because we have money. And we forget that we are just as vulnerable to death as all humans have always been forever. So Jesus says it's really hard. And so then the question would be, after reading that out, well, then what are we doing here this morning? <laughs> What's the point of gathering together as a church? Well, the point is that even though it's really hard, it does happen. Look what Jesus says to finish up this, this section. In 18, Luke 18, 26 to 30, it says, Those who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive, a, a, will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus says it's hard, but it's possible and it really happens. And to make that very point, the God of the impossible demonstrates just a few short sentences later a very different story with a very different type of wealthy man. In Luke 19, just a few sentences later, we read this story. That If you've been around in church for a while, you may have heard this before, the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Look what it says. It says, He entered Jericho and was passing through. This is Jesus, by the way. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. So not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. And was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. That is such a gentle way to describe it, isn't it? Luke really wrestled with the words. How do I kind of say it's just like, he's a shorty short man. But he says he was small in stature. And so he ran on ahead and he climbed up a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give it to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. In the first story, we get a rich religious guy that everyone looks up to. In the second story, we get a villainous rich man that everyone looks down on and everyone hates. And just in case you're not familiar with the ancient world and what a tax collector was, they weren't an accountant or like just faithful government workers. Tax collectors were extortionists. They took money from people. They took more than they needed to take. They were greedy, and they, they'd betrayed even their own people. 
So if one guy who everyone looked up to, one guy who everyone looked down on, also punning on that because he was quite short. The rich man walks away sad, but it says in the story that Zacchaeus received Jesus joyfully. We have the contrast of the rich ruler who's given a direct command and he just cannot obey it. And we have Zacchaeus who's given no command at all, but just volunteers out of nowhere, Jesus, this is what I'm going to do in response to having understood who you are and what it means to be a follower of you. And we have one man who walks away sad and the other who Jesus says has been welcomed into the family of God. He says, today salvation has come to this house. This is the impact of a real encounter with Jesus, a real encounter with the gospel, that it turns everything upside down. One guy just couldn't believe that Jesus would be worth losing everything for. And the other, the moment he met him, and understood that he was a sinner who is now welcomed by God, who had come to rescue him, to come to seek and save the lost, it changed his whole life around. Suddenly the grip that money had on him, that made him do despicable things, just fell away. He didn't care about it anymore. He's like, I'm going to give away, and there is no rule in this about the Bible. He says, I'm going to give away a quarter of it to the poor. And he says, if I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to pay them back more than what I owe them on top. His life gets turned completely upside down in a moment. See, the truth is, Jesus does this work again and again. That a real encounter with Jesus transforms all of life. And one of the key external ways you can see it is in the way that you relate to money. William Wilberforce was a guy who is known famously as, as one of the key people who was instrumental in ending slavery in the UK. But his life didn't start out in that way. He was, uh, in his biography, described as a dandy and a cad, which is like, a, like old school language for saying he was like a hedge fund jerk. And he spent his life just living lavishly. He was extremely talented. He kind of got into polit politics by virtue of his family, and he used it for his own gain mostly. But when he came to know Jesus truly, and when he understood the gospel and had his life completely turned upside down, it changed his whole perspective on life, and he made it his life's work to end slavery. And it wasn't just that. He was committed to a variety of causes for the good of others. But when it came to money, he's quoted as saying this. It will come up on the screen for you. He says, By careful management, I should be able to give away at least one quarter of my income away to the poor. That sounds familiar to the story we read. And he wrote that riches in themselves are acceptable, but from the infirmity of our nature, highly dangerous possessions, and we're to value them chiefly not as instruments of luxury or splendor, but as affording the means of honoring our Heavenly Father and lessening the miseries of mankind. Then in understanding the gospel, it transformed how he viewed the wealth that had been given to him. And he saw it as not being primarily about luxury as it was for him before, but he was like, this is... This is to honor God, to advance the gospel, and to alleviate poverty and misery in the world. And he lived it out. So if you are here and not sure where you stand with God, would you take a moment to dive more deeply into these claims? Because there is example after example of lives that have been completely turned upside down by a real encounter with Jesus. And it transforms not just one part of life, but all of it in a profound way. And it might be that you are missing out on the very thing that life is meant to be about.
But if you are hearing a believer, can I challenge you to this, for this first talk on it, is to do something. As Christians, we can sometimes over time just get in the habit of talking about doing something and that becomes a way of not doing something. We have a child that will remain nameless who, when they're in a really good mood, if you tell them to do something, they will sing a song about that thing instead of doing the thing. So you'd be like, go and brush your teeth, and they'll be like, brushing my teeth, and they're like walking out into the backyard or whatever it is. And when I'm in a good mood, I find it funny, and when I'm not, I don't. I wonder what it's like for Jesus to say to his church, do this thing, and then instead we just sing songs about it. We get together in Bible studies, and we talk about doing the thing, but don't actually do it. You can't read these two stories back to back and for the application to be nothing. We do need to do something. And sort of to land this, I want to give us one application that I think everyone here who is a follower of Jesus probably should be doing. And one application that maybe some of us might want to take up. And the first one is this. If you are a believer... It should be a habit in the way that you handle money to set aside a portion of it and a set percentage that will go away from you. That is to go out to advance the gospel and to alleviate poverty and injustice in the world. And it should be a fixed amount that you've prayed through, thought through, got good counsel on, but that stays fixed so that your heart over time doesn't just increasingly spend more and more on what we are most likely to spend it on, which is ourselves. And the reason this habit is so helpful is that it's a reminder that we are not our own and that we belong to another and that we are not the ones who set the priorities for what we spend on. That actually we worship a good God who's been incredibly generous to us and that as an overflow of that, we are called to be generous as well. And the reason this should be a fixed habit is because otherwise our natural inclination is that really it will end up just going on us. And so can I encourage you, if you haven't done that today, to set aside, if you have an online account, a set account that you call whatever it is, like generosity, kingdom, you can name it, whatever you want, but where that money goes in there and you just separate it from yourself so that you don't see it as your own, so you can think about where could this go and do good. And if you haven't done that before, to actually start that habit even this week, even today. That's the first one that I think would be helpful. And the second one would be this. And this isn't my idea, so I can't take credit for it. But we'll put the challenge to you for, for 20 days, so that is the length of this part of the series, to do what I call 20 days of downgrade. And the reason for this is the general tendency of spending in our culture is always to upgrade or to upsize. And we had a guy who he wrote a book called The Barefoot Disciple, which is meant to be punning on the barefoot investor, but he's a Christian guy, and he came and did a seminar for us, and he gave us this, this habit as, as, as something to practice. He said, like, just practice the habit of downgrading. So when you go to, say, get a coffee, and you normally get a large, downgrade it to a regular, and then put the difference in that account that you've set aside that's going away. And with all kinds of different purchases, so maybe with lunch when you'd normally buy it out, you actually just, you know, I don't know, you get like a can of tuna from Woolworths or something. I don't know, it doesn't have to be that. You know what I mean, right? 
But each time there's a difference in what you spend, the same amount's going out of your account, but a lot more will be going away from you. And to build that in as a, as a habit over 20 days and just to see what impact that has on your soul and to see whether or not you start to feel more like Zacchaeus filled with the joy of the gospel or more like the rich young ruler who just feels sadder and sadder. And hopefully it's the latter. But if you think about that, the impact of a small habit like that over 20 days in a church community like ours would actually be quite significant. I had to run this maths by Blair, who's an accountant, just because I was like, it can't really work out like this, can it? But it can. If you downgraded to the tune of a single coffee, which in Sydney is $96, $5, if you downgraded to the tune of a single coffee a day, and only 100 of us did that over 20 days, that's 10K that would go out into the world. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. But then think about this, and this was the one that got me. If 100 people did that for 365 days this year, that's like $172,500 over the year. Someone can correct me if that's wrong, right? Thank you. Yes, that's right, correct. Not 72, 82. And that's why I failed maths. But you think of like such a small practice that a community could do in light of the gospel could have that kind of impact is almost shocking in a sense, isn't it? Look, it can't be the case that as believers in Christ who believe that God himself came down to this earth to sacrifice his life for ours in an exchange for our life, his blood for our eternal life, and that we could live spending more on takeout a year than half the world lives on per day? Or that we'd spend more, that our coffee bill would be more than some people are living on for their entire life and livelihood. There has to be some kind of change. And more than that, as a community together, it's an encouragement when we see the grace of God at work in others' lives changing too. And the reason we do this is not out of guilt or shame or obligation. But Zacchaeus did it because he understood who Jesus was and out of his joy, it just transformed his life. And so my prayer is that as we step into these things, that we'd have a sense of gospel optimism and a sense that God might do abundantly more than even we think or ask, not just over this series, but over our year and over the length of our lives. Let's pray that he'd be at work in our church community. Father, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would prevent us from doing the truly foolish thing of hearing your word and going away and doing nothing about it. Father, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, empower us to live lives that are shaped by the gospel, that our priorities and our lives would be built around your kingdom purposes. That we would be so blown away by your love and forgiveness in Christ that it would move us to live transformed lives and to be different in order to make a difference. And Father, we just pray that through this that you would strengthen us with joy. That as we seek to honor you and to live for Christ fully, that we would remember that we are sinners saved by grace and that we are not perfect people 
but that our heart is just to live for you and to honor you and to reflect something of your grace toward us in the way that we live. And so, Father, we pray that it would be for our joy and for your glory. And we pray these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen.